Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Well, Yom Kippur just passed and Sukkot is about to begin. If you're celebrating these holidays, I hope your time with family and friends is deeply meaningful. It would be logical to anticipate that this episode would have something to do with the land, Sukkot, and memory, because those are all favorite subjects of mine. But I thought I would dive into the mysterious realm with a sample of a recently released roundtable talk between Dr. Yeshaya Gruber and Dr. Reed Carlson. I listened to this talk and afterwards had so many questions because my curiosity was piqued. Good thing Dr. Carlson lives in my hometown. I'm going to have to see if I can follow up with him. Anyway, the conversation was about Dr. Carlson's new book titled Unfamiliar Selves in the Hebrew Bible. It's about spiritual phenomena in the biblical world. You know, those weird stories we don't always know what to do with. And the book does not stick only to the biblical text. In fact, Dr. Carlson starts with an eclectic mix of modern examples of spiritual phenomena, including one man who was accused of murder and demon possession was used as part of his legal argument in court. So maybe we should start with why Dr. Carlson chose to use these modern examples in his theological book. I think there were maybe a few different reasons behind that eclectic mix of things. First, I was aware that probably for a lot of readers, if they hear about a book that's about spirit possession or uh, spirit stuff more generally, it might conjure for them a particular setting, something familiar from, uh, say, a Stephen King movie or, or, or something like that. And so um, part of the point of the book is to, um, is to kind of deconstruct that a little bit, or at least to widen it out and suggest that spirit phenomena in practice around the world today is quite diverse and that maybe we might find some of that diversity also in the Hebrew Bible. And so in that first chapter, the murder in Connecticut, that actually is in that familiar paradigm. And so I present it almost as a kind of negative example, um, as, you know, if this is what you're thinking about, um, here, are, here are some ways in which we can see that this idea of spirit possession is constructed um, socially and um, in in history, and um, and then every chapter, um, there's only five, but each of the five chapters begins typically with another kind of spirit phenomenon somewhere in in the world, and often they're they're mixed in as well, and and these are quite intentionally uh, different from that opening one in the book. I want to make sure that we don't make the mistake of 
talking about um, spirit stuff in the Hebrew Bible and in Second Temple Judaism as existing on a kind of inevitable trajectory into the New Testament. And so while there are obvious influences, everything has to come from somewhere in, in Paul or in the Gospels that come out of early Judaism, there are things that are maybe less familiar, maybe different ways that spirits were, were talked about. And so there is a lot of extended interest in charismatic spirit phenomena in scripture, um, probably in part driven by charismatic Christians. And that work is important to look at. But one of the things I want to bring out in the book is that is that not everything that I count as a spirit phenomenon might look like that. So there are um, different examples of spirit language that I point to where someone is using that keyword ruach, but, but not always, in ways that articulate interesting ideas about subjectivity, about moral agency, about wisdom and knowledge and other things that, that might be outside those traditional paradigms. I think maybe we need to dig into some examples. Let's start with the story that occurs at the end of Saul's life as he is with his soldiers and his sons on the top of Mount Gilboa, ready to engage the Philistines in battle. The Philistines are all gathered down below in the small little village area of Shunem. So Saul sneaks out at night and goes around enemy lines to Endor, where he finds a witch or a medium. And this is weird, right? Because Samuel shows up and we don't always know what to do with the prophet Samuel showing up in this story. And it's all so fascinating. So for someone who studies humans and spirit phenomena, I'm very curious what Dr. Carlson will say to explain this story. And he starts by explaining a philosophical model of being human that uses the terms poorest self and buffered self. That that story, um, because it's an extended story and because Saul is such a fascinating kind of spirit-influenced uh, guy, he, he becomes um, kind of my parade example in the uh, second chapter where I kind of try to show uh, whether or not my method has any merit. And um, I introduce this idea, uh, the, the, I, I contrast between the poorest self and the buffered self, an idea that I get from the philosopher Charles Taylor. And I, I, I suggest that with Taylor, many modern readers have been, we've kind of been conditioned to value and valorize being a buffered self. This is a model human being, someone who is able to be uh, literally self possessed, right? And, and, and to keep out foreign influences, to not be affected, um, and, and so on. And Taylor suggests that in pre-modern contexts, it's not so much that they valorized the porous self instead of the buffered self. It's that they believe that the buffered self was impossible. How can you keep the, the, the world outside from affecting you? And, um, spirits, which of course, um, in biblical, in, uh, also has the idea of breath or wind or something, you know, you, you can't keep out breath. You need to breathe. And so thus you will be affected by, by the, by um, the, the spirits around you, the, the people around you, you, you smell them, you, you know, you inhale them there. They are, they are getting in. And so the, the, the goal is not to keep spirits out necessarily, 
but to manage the spirits that get in. And, and this holds up with some comparison that I do with other cultures where, where spirit influence often manifests, at least initially, as a kind of ailment, which, um, which it does in Saul's case in 1 Samuel 16 and, and, and elsewhere. So that visit where Saul goes to the medium, I suggest, is, is very familiar from ethnographic writing of people going to visit mediums in various places around the world. I use an example from uh, Cuba uh, of a spiritist medium. And, um, and so I suggest that, that Saul goes to visit this medium and she uh, basically does her job. She's a professional and she hosts the uh, spirit of Samuel within her body. And this is maybe the intervention that I, that I seek to make is that, um, Often this story is interpreted, especially in arts, if you just kind of Google some pictures of it, you'll see that there's a kind of uh, like ghostly figure or something, a third figure that's in the room with Saul and the medium. This is 1 Samuel 28 for people that want to look it up. And I suggest that she is actually just hosting the spirit uh, of Samuel within her body. And when it's his lines, it's her speaking. Because modern readers... Are, in, are, are kind of assuming this idea of the buffered self, we would expect the narrator of the story to tell us this, to explain this to us. And I think that the narrator told us that she's a professional medium and she is doing what's, what, she, what she has been told to do. Um, it's interesting, for instance, that um, there are several verbs for seeing in that passage, but Saul must ask her what she sees. And it's only after she describes a figure wearing a cloak, this this fabled cloak that uh, from Samuel and Saul earlier in chapter fifteen, that Saul realizes with whom he is speaking. I wonder: is there any indication, whether in this story or any of the other sources that you're looking at, as to how or why a medium like that would be able to, in a sense, compel Samuel to? I don't know what the appropriate term would be, but use her body or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is really troublesome. And if you look at the commentary, particularly like Christian commentary that has like a kind of homiletical <laughs> bent, uh, it's, it's often a stumbling block as, as to, you know, who is this? This is incidentally, this is, this is part of the reason why I like, why I continue to use the term spirit possession in the book, which um, I have a long discussion on it, but this is a term that has been problematized, particularly because of its association with uh, colonialism and and actually the transatlantic slave trade specifically. But there is a kind of ambiguity in it about who is doing the possessing here. And it does seem like that she calls up this spirit against uh, against his will. Samuel is not is not happy about this, which it, it's clear to me that it actually is Samuel. It's interesting. Saul doesn't get much. Uh, Samuel's speech basically just rehashes everything he said in chapter 15. So it's not like he gets some new insight or anything like that. From the ethnographic literature, we might suggest that because she is a professional, perhaps she has an existing relationship with a spirit that helps her manipulate um, the, you know the the unseen world in some way or, or 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 something and or it could be as I think again dealing with the literary presentation again that this scene 
we might say um, the, that the the final editors of that book are are, are kind of allowing they, they perceive God as allowing this practice to take place in order to hammer home just how lost and unfit for office Saul really, really is. And, and so I think uh, there's different ways one could look at it. We see from the story of Saul and David, and you point this out in your book, that music plays a, an important role in interaction with the spirit realm. Um, from David playing the harp, for example, um, to, to improve Saul's state. I wonder, how does this work exactly? You know, why is music important? I think Plato has a comment, it's not exactly similar, but about music being connected to the celestial spheres as well. Um, And what about other physical things like scents and clothes and food that you've also been alluding to? I mean, are they as important as music or, you know, how would you describe these physical aspects that are taking place in our world with respect to spirit phenomena? These uh, scant references to material in biblical liter- literature is one, is one of the one of the places where I see an invitation to compare to the ethnographic literature because ethnographic literature is often very rich with descriptions of the costumes that people are wearing and the food, the special foods that are offered, the the music, the the ritual, the particular acts of the ritual, and so on. Um, but this is consistent even with. Um, if your if your viewers are themselves uh, people of faith who participate in various ritual acts and 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 how often ritual does uh, strive to get more than just our intellect involved, whether it's in movement, whether it's you know taste. I, I come out of a Christian tradition, so of course I'm thinking of Eucharist and the the movement forward and the taking of elements into the body and. Uh, music and incense and so on and so um, and so when we find these places where the spirit is soothed by Saul, by by David playing the instrument, you know, where um, one commentator suggested uh, it's interesting that Saul changes his clothes before he goes to visit this medium. Um, is he is he going in disguise uh, or is it maybe part of the ritual? There is the very um, colorful description of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on, on Mount Carmel. And, and uh, this too has descriptions of senses there dancing and, and the very uh, kind of visceral cutting of, of blood and, and so on. All of these can be seen as ways of trying to, uh, often they're interpreted as ways of trying to evoke the deity into action, but they might be also ways of getting a person's body into the right place. Uh, fasting, of course, is in many religions a way a way of pre- of preparing oneself for um, a kind of religious trial or religious experience. Do you know one of the things I really love about these roundtable talks is Dr. Gruber does not shy away from asking hard questions about all the things we are all wondering about. Like, what about those instances in the Bible when someone seems sick and there's an exorcism that makes the person well? Or say someone who we in modern day might say has a psychiatric disorder, but in the ancient text, that is all associated with spirit possession. Is our modern medical knowledge brushing away the need to explain something as spiritual? I believe that we do have evidence of distinctions between, say, mental illness and spirit influence in primary texts. But 
in ethnographic literature too, in cultures where spirit possession is practiced, we have distinction as well. And so for me, these are two overlapping spheres. It's not that mental illness or physical illness has nothing to do with that language. I think anyone reading the story of Saul has to see that 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 this guy is dealing with something, right? Or, or, or dealing with, with many things. I think we underestimate the, the, the sophistication and the efficacy of using spirit language to describe things that are happening within our bodies. And, and so we underestimate uh, people in antiquity or people around the world today and how they do that. And at the same time, we, we are kind of in denial about the way that we as moderns also use ideology or myth, if you will, to talk about the diseases that we have. And even though we have modern medical sophistication, we still have certain models that we use to talk about our sicknesses and so on. And so to, it's, it's the harder answer to treat them as overlapping and to try to figure out where is the overlap and where isn't it. This leads us to question the development of ideas as we move from Israelite literature to Second Temple literature and the Gospels. The Gospels clearly talk about spirit phenomenon associated with mental or physical illness. Does anything change in the overall context of the time that will help us know how to interpret and understand these texts better? Uh, so I see the Gospels as, as uh, reflecting a particular, we might say, stream out of which the rich spirit-filled world of Second Temple Judaism, if you will, um, one of the many streams that might have come out of it. The Gospels in particular are really arresting because of these scenes of demonic possession where someone is out of their mind. And, and also, I would say, one of the unique things about spirit possession in the Gospels is how effective Jesus is portraying and exercising these spirits, whereas in a lot of literature, a spirit problem is often portrayed as a kind of persistent, we might almost say a chronic disease that is more managed than cured. Jesus is always is always just kind of wrapping it up quickly. And, and, and so I see it as one reflex of it. Perhaps things that we can see hints of in various literatures from the Second Temple period, but, but even then, that notion of a spirit taking complete control and and a person's personality completely absconding is is not something I think we find very good evidence for in the Hebrew Bible or or even in a lot of early Jewish literature. There are maybe a few places where where you could maybe see it, but often in 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 the Hebrew Bible, a person when even when someone is will say possessed by gods by the by the ruach adonai uh, they are still they are still there so to speak you know their their personality is still there it and perhaps uh possession is too limiting uh it's more of a spirit collaboration or 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 or, or something like that and i see the new testament as a very distinct um, particular um, direction. What about in the Dead Sea Scrolls? You talked about uh, the community rule and several other texts, the Hodayot literature and and some others. And they seem uh, concerned as well to protect themselves from these influences. What's the approach that they take? Yeah, I think, uh, and, I, and of course I have to give the disclaimer that the Dead Sea Scrolls are also not a unified systematic view, right? Um, different, different perspectives in this, in this library. For instance, we have 
texts that seem to be influenced by a more sophisticated mythology in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, these unknown spirits, sometimes they have names, they even have like personalities, they have a kind of will, or um, they're part of a kind of mission that is in opposition to God or something. The very famous uh, treatise on the two spirits, as it's sometimes called in, in the community rule, has what's been called a dualistic determinist framework about everybody's on one side or the other, you know, which, which is the spirit that's influencing you. And um, this seems to be something influenced as much by a kind of mythology mapping of the cosmos as it is by perhaps by experience. And, and in general, we might say that the Dead Sea Scrolls, the spirit phenomena of the Dead Sea Scrolls are often of a more eschatological nature than is um, the stuff we maybe find in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you also find examples of spirits being associated with ritual impurity and particular diseases. Some of these texts are, are a bit fragmentary, as I discussed in the book, so it's hard to know what those associations are, but it is interesting when you think about, for instance, in the Gospel of Mark, how the, the principal name for spirits are unclean spirits, not demons, but unclean spirits. So again, you can see where some of this material in the New Testament is coming from, um, but it's just important not to, it's important to recognize that that's not the only place, not the only direction it, it needs to go. Dr. Gruber and Dr. Carlson go on to discuss good and evil and fallen angels. You'll have to go to the Israel Bible Center's website to listen to the full discussion. And of course, I'll add an easy link in the show notes of this episode so you can find it quickly. But in conclusion, why should any of us pay attention to spiritual matters? Why does Dr. Carlson talk about this in his classes? What can we in the modern world learn from how the ancients thought about spirits? One of the prejudices that I hope to combat is that spirit stuff is somehow irrational or naive, and that people of faith who believe in that type of material are less sophisticated than their more uh, stoic uh, siblings <laughs> in, in the church. Th this is often, ultimately, I think, racist. Often gender is wrapped up in it too. Women are sometimes uh, perceived as being more spiritually porous. Perhaps men have just been socialized to be more spiritually buffered. I don't know. And the, the, the stereotype of an emotional, out-of-control woman or something like that can, can often um, be, be evoked and, and so on. And so I don't think people realize how their attitudes about spirits might be connected to other types of, of harmful um, ideas. That, that they might not even realize that they harbor. More generally, when we think about our world and patterns of migration, whereas uh, Western rationalist-influenced uh, people have a particular sphere for understanding this, this material, people from the global South, religious traditions from the global South, generally speaking, uh, often are very spiritual and invested in, in this type of um, these types of experiences and ideas. And so as our world increasingly becomes pluralistic, not just in terms of what what someone's um, creed is, so to speak, but also just pluralistic within uh, within traditions about how best to practice, it's something that needs to be uh, thought about and negotiated as well. Um, there are, 
I, I cite some studies in the book that show um, that um, for people suffering from a certain mental illnesses, if they come from the global South and they go to the study I'm thinking of was in the UK, if someone originates in a culture that where spirit practice was were were um, were common, it it showed that for treating things like depression and anxiety, traditional spiritual methods were more effective than conventional psychotherapy, uh, at least in 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 reducing symptoms. And so um, this is not to say that medicine can't be trusted or something like that. But I, uh, again, that, that theme of underestimating is, is something that I, I think we are closing off part of what it means to be human when, when we disregard this stuff so quickly. Even if you yourself don't want to participate in it, I, I think we can make room for it in religious discourse and, and, in, and in public spaces. Ah, making room in religious discourse for all the strange and wonderful questions we have and all the twists and turns the biblical text itself will take you on if you are curious enough. See, these are the conversations I love. And thank you for being here this week with me. Next week, we're going to continue hanging out in the mysterious world, so don't miss out. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 